Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Dr. Joseph Ledoux is the Henry and Lucy Moses Professor of Science at NYU in the Center for Neuroscience, and he directs the Emotional Brain Institute of NYU and the Nathan Klein Institute. He is also a professor of psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry at NYU Langone Medical School. His work is focused on the brain mechanisms of memory and emotion, and he is the author of The Emotional Brain, Synaptic Self, Anxious, and The Deep History of Ourselves. Dr. Ledoux has received numerous awards, including the William James Award from the Association for Psychological Science, the Carl Spencer Lashley Award from the American Philosophical Society, the Fison International Prize in Cognitive Science, and the American Psychological Association Distinguished Scientific Contributions Award, among many, many others. His book, Anxious, received the 2016 William James Book Award from the American Psychological Association. Dr. Ledoux is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the New York Academy of Sciences, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He is also the lead singer and songwriter in the rock band, The Amygdaloids, and performs with Colin Dempsey as the acoustic duo, So We Are. Dr. Joseph Ledoux, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? Not bad, Nick. Very well, thanks. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me today. Sure. Uh, well, needless to say, I'm, uh, I'm absolutely delighted to have a chance to speak with you. For me, this is the academic equivalent of getting to sit down with Sting, Andy Summers, or Stuart Copeland from the police. <laughs> so so, so wow. now that I've completely outed myself as a fanboy, uh, what I'm hoping we can accomplish in our discussion today is to go under the hood a little bit to help clinicians and mental health consumers understand a little bit more about uh, what is going on in the brain during uh, our emotional experiences. So I thought we could perhaps start with a real-world example to map out some of the brain areas and circuitry that we might end up discussing. So let's imagine we have someone hiking through the woods. Uh, they come around a corner and they see a bear. Can you trace that flow of information through the brain and talk about when and how specific brain regions become activated and how their pattern of connectivity ultimately leads to the experience of an emotion like fear? Okay, so um, pretty straightforward. The the uh, bear is a visual stimulus. You might smell it too, but let's just talk about it in terms of uh, vision. So the side of the bear is processed by the retina. The retina uh, transmits that to the op optic nerve. The optic nerve sends it into visual areas of the thalamus, which is a you know classically defined as a, a way station to the cortex, especially for sensory systems. So the the visual thalamus connects to the visual cortex, uh, but it also has uh, connections to subcortical areas and especially uh, the amygdala. Now, the amygdala, of course, is important in all of this because it's part of the brain that, although classically known as a fear center, I prefer to think of it as a threat detecting uh, uh, circuit. So it detects the, the, the threat uh, that threat is received by the amygdala, both uh, from the thalamus, from the visual thalamus, but also by way of the visual cortex. So in my 1996 book, The Emotional Brain, I described those as the low road and the high road to the amygdala. Um, so they're both, they're both are uh, providing information about the visual properties of the bear, but in one case, it's a rather crude template <clears throat> 
um, <clears throat> excuse me, going from the thalamus to the uh, uh, to the amygdala. I call that the low road and called it a quick and dirty pathway because it gets there uh, rather precisely in, in time. Um, and if it's an auditory stimulus in a rat, for example, it takes about um, uh, seven or eight milliseconds to get to the amygdala from the outside world. Um, whereas to go by way of the cortex, the same stimulus is going to get to the amygdala, but it's going to be much more visually rich uh, because of what the cortex does for visual processing. Um, and it'll take a little longer to get there. So the classic uh, distinction between the low road and high road is depicted by thinking of a uh, you're walking through the woods and what you see in this case is a, a snake on the ground. And so you freeze. Um, the low road allows you to freeze as if uh, you saw a snake, even if it's a, a sort of curved stick on the ground, uh, because that prevents you from stepping on the snake and being harmed. So that's why I call it a quick and dirty pathway. If it turns out not to be a snake, no harm done, you just keep walking. But if it's a snake, you've saved a, a few milliseconds of processing by freezing at that point, and then you can move on. So the, um, the important thing is that the, um, you know, we think, well, maybe a few milliseconds, what's the big difference? But a few milliseconds is important because the brain's clock ticks in, in uh, milliseconds, whereas our mind ticks on, on the level of seconds or close to seconds. So it's an important feature of the brain to be able to respond quickly to danger, even if it's you're over uh, responding. Um, and now, obviously, that has implications for your, your uh, livelihood. The, way people can become overreactive to threats, but we can come back to that later. So right now we've talked about is the kind of uh, the first part of the system, the way the brain detects and responds to danger. By the way, in addition to activating something like a freezing response, uh, the amygdala will uh, trigger, the outputs of the amygdala will trigger um, autonomic nervous system activities, um, and release hormones into the circulation. So what we end up with is a state in which we're freezing, uh, blood pressure and heart rate are rising, uh, stress hormones are being released, and all of this is kind of coming together to, to amplify what else that's happening in your brain. And what else is happening is the fact that your visual, your visual cortex, in addition to sending information to the amygdala, is also sending information to centers of the brain, areas of the brain further forward into uh, semantic and episodic memory processing circuits in the medial temporal lobe, for example, but also uh, to the prefrontal cortex where we can begin to conceptualize what it is that's happening to us. Now, the um, uh, prefrontal cortex is also getting that information from semantic and episodic memory circuits in the temporal lobe. So the prefrontal cortex is a kind of clearinghouse for pulling in all this information. In addition to the fact that you uh, are processing a visual stimulus and having a memory about it, so you're, you're integrating memory and vision in the prefrontal cortex into a complicated perception of what it is that you're seeing. Um, so that would be, um, you know, that would be a kind of cognitive perception. But at the same time, because of all that uh, all the body stuff that's been generated by the amygdala as part of that 
uh, initial pass of the stimulus there while the prefrontal cortex is simultaneously getting the information. The, the outputs of the amygdala generated all this body activity. And some of that is coming back in the form of uh, hormones that are, are that flow into the brain and, and go to these various areas, prefrontal cortex, amygdala, hippocampus, everywhere, basically. Um, uh, but also in the form of body feedback where, um, you know, the, the, the uh, you, you're, you have proprioceptive feedback, you have autonomic nervous system feedback, uh, and, um, uh, uh, and all of these are creating signals that can influence uh, the way the prefrontal cortex is processing that, that uh, uh, event. So that's kind of where we, we are in terms of cognitively and um, physiologically what's going on, but now let's talk about it uh, uh, at one more step. So every conscious experience we have is until the final moment before it's conscious, that last microsecond, uh, it's unconscious. So that it's consciousness is built up from a tremendous amount of non-conscious processing. And the, you know, Carl Lashley was a famous uh, psychologist uh, once said that you know, we're never aware of, um, uh, uh, we're only aware of what we're aware of. We're not aware of the unconscious processes that gave us that awareness. So it, we have to appreciate that all of the processing in the brain that is leading up to this point is giving us a kind of unified representation in the prefrontal cortex that includes the stimulus uh, memories about the stimulus, including episodic and somatic uh, um, information about the body feedback that's going on. All of that is coalescing in a uh, part of the brain that can put it all together. And one place that can happen is the prefrontal cortex. So that prefrontal cortex representation is at this point unconscious. But for whatever reason that consciousness happens, that kind of thing, when it becomes conscious, becomes um, the, the, the non-conscious part becomes a template for your conscious experience. And so when you are starting to experience fear, according to my particular model, what you are experiencing is the buildup of that non-conscious processing that, you know, the flip is thrown and is now in your conscious mind. Now included in that buildup, are going to be, in addition to the sensory and, and memory and, and body feedback information, um, more complex memories called schema. One kind of schema uh, is an emotion schema, which is your body of knowledge uh, about everything that's happened to you in terms of uh, danger throughout your life. Uh, this body of knowledge um, uh, is just sitting there. It's not like it's, you know, poured into a container and sitting there together like that. It's, it's, it's memory and it's distributed, but certain memories are tagged to be uh, associated together by these schema. Um, and so when a part of that schema is activated, for example, a snake will through semantic memory um, activate the schema because snakes are dangerous. Um, and so you get, you begin to have a, a kind of fear schema that's building up. Uh, and if part of if that schema is also including the fact that your heart is beating fast, uh, that there's no opportunity for escape 
in the environment, then that's pretty much, you know, all you need to start having the feeling of fear, the conscious experience of fear. So that conscious experience of fear is your cognitive interpretation of the situation in which you find yourself. I can go on and uh, um, it might be a good point to introduce Antonio Damasio and my difference between my views and his at this point, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've talked a lot about body feedback so far. um, And in Antonio Damasio's theory, the uh, body feedback provides signatures that define the emotion for basic emotions. So he's a basic emotions theorist. That means you've got the you know, fear and anger and uh, uh, joy and a bunch of five or six different things that are basic emotions, like Paul Ekman's theory as well. Um, but um, for Damasio, the body signatures are what define the emotion. For me, um, what defines an emotion is your mental model, your cognitive model of the situation in which you find yourself. So. Um, Antonio has this interesting thing called an as-if loop. So he says, you know, if you're in a situation of danger and your body is not responding in a way that it normally responds in danger, you don't have that body feedback, in other words, your brain uh, has an as-if loop, which it can simulate the body feedback as if you were in danger. And so he, this... Cognitive simulation for him is like uh, uh, what happens when you don't have body feedback. But for me, the cognitive simulation is the whole story. All emotions are cognitive simulations, interpretations of situations in which we find ourselves. The body feedback is part of that, but it's not the defining feature. The defining feature is your emotion schema. Now, let me, I'll say one more thing and then uh, we can open it up a bit. The a second kind of schema involved is your fear schema. Your fear schema is your knowledge of everything about you. And um, part of my model is that you have to, your, your, your fear, your uh, self schema has to be activated, has to be um, present in order for you to feel fear. Um, I have a, a T-shirt that I put out with my last uh, book, The Deep History of Ourselves. Uh, the T-shirt says, no self, no fear. So it, what that means is if you aren't consciously aware that the snake or the bear is going to harm you, then you aren't afraid in the sense you aren't afraid of being harmed. Fear is the, is the awareness that you might be harmed in some way, psychologically, biologically, physiologically. Um, but it's it's um, it's not an innate state that bubbles up out of the amygdala. It's a cognitive interpretation. The amygdala contributes, but it contributes the you know some uh, peripheral uh, ammunition that that you can load up with. Uh, but it's not the actual thing itself. So um, you know, I think one more thing on the on the emotion schema uh, because we each have a. Um, uh, our own emotion schema, because all of our experiences in life are somewhat different, we, we tend to uh, um, have our own understanding of what fear is. So what I experience as fear is not going to be exactly what you or anyone else experiences as fear. Fear is a personal, individualized thing. Now, because people in different cultures uh, 
have different experiences because the cultures are different. Their experiences of fear are going to be different as well. So fear, uh, emotions are both cultural and personal. They're personal at the individual level, but the individual is shaped by the culture in which he or she is. But we can take the words of another, of another culture and put them into English. And since English is like kind of the standard scientific language, we translate all those, those words that cultures have for being in danger. And every word's going to have, every culture is going to have words for being in danger because danger is one of the most important things in a human life. You can't, you in an animal life, for certain that we have to uh, be acutely aware of danger and respond to it effectively. Um, so the, the fact that we have words, that all cultures are going to have words for danger, dangerous situations, uh, and that we translate those into English, it becomes fear. So because we can translate the words across cultures, we assume that the cultural experiences are going to be the same, but they're not. The words are the same, but the cultural experiences are different, just as the individual differences um, are different. So what is universal is not fear, but danger. It's a situation that's, that's universal. And the way every, every human is going to respond to that kind of situation, and so it the experience they have is assumed to be universal because it's triggered by the same kind of situation and we use the same word for it. All right, I'll stop there. <laughs> no, I really appreciate the very, very thorough and nuanced walk through uh, what, what on the surface seems like a very simple question, but much like your books, as you go through them and unpack them, you realize just the layers of complexity uh, that are there. Uh, I'll hope to dig into this just a little bit later with some specific questions, but, you know, really just at a very high level, do you see any obvious implications around how emotional experiences are constructed from a psychotherapeutic perspective? And I know you're not a clinician, but just I mean, just, you know, just as a matter of speculation, like based on your knowledge of how the information flows and how things are constructed, what is therapist should we be aware of, or how can we leverage knowledge of this to improve our interventions? So, well, you know, one way to think about um, all of this that I've come to uh, uh, believe is that every uh, every kind of symptom, psycho psychological symptom that that uh, a person has is a response, and because it's a response, it's controlled by the brain in some way. So we can think of the brain as like a, a cauldron of symptoms and um, symptom circuits. So for example, uh, when one is freezing or avoiding, those are related kinds of responses. They're both uh, defensive, protecting the, and the person, but um, they're, they're controlled by different circuits. Uh, one involves uh, amygdala and its outputs to the, the lower brainstem to control all the responses we've been talking about, freezing, blood pressure, hormones. Um, and, but the other, the avoidance response involves connections from the amygdala to the um, uh, ventral striatum, nucleus accumbens, and from there to other areas of, uh, uh, of the striatum. So the, uh, these are related responses, but they're based on different uh, circuits. Even if we take like the freezing response, freezing is controlled by one set of circuits, Autonomic nervous system responses are controlled by a separate set of outputs of the amygdala. Um, uh, 
And in, in fact, the parasympathetic and sympathetic responses are controlled by separate outputs of the amygdala. And the hormones that are released are controlled by separate outputs of the amygdala. So you got one you know, area of the brain, the central nucleus of the amygdala, which is you know, involved in a lot of the output activity that connects to a bunch of other downstream areas. And each of those downstream areas controls a different kind of response. I think I just mentioned uh, maybe four or five, there are five, maybe five response, four or five responses uh, that are controlled by different outputs of the amygdala. Each of those is a kind of symptom. Um, and so when, it, but another kind of symptom, of course, is uh, the way the person feels. Now, again, as you said, I'm not a therapist, so maybe I have no business saying all this, but my feeling is having followed the literature for a long time, uh, including and, and doing a lot of research on the history of all this, is that the um, over the, the year, well, let's say starting in the 1950s, when the pharmaceutical industry was just beginning to get involved, um, <clears throat> behaviorism had become interested in, in therapy, you know, Skinner and uh, Bandura and, and others were creating um, ways of uh, altering and trying to help people um, with their problems by altering their behavior. I want to focus on the extinction methods that were being used by Volpe, for example. Um, so this is straight out of the, you know, behaviorist laboratory using extinction to um, uh, weaken responses that have been conditioned uh, in a Pavlovian training paradigm. So, uh, this was taken to be a, um, a way of systematically desensitizing people to their their cues, the you know their trigger cues for fear and anxiety, um, and I think. But even at, at the very beginning, it was not really used the way it's done in the, in the laboratory. There was uh, some you know relaxation training and and other things that are that are going on. Um, and so as cognitive behavior therapy evolved, um, extinction was brought along as a, a major tool, but you got more and more kind of top-down processing associated with the whole process. Um, so that in addition to simply extinguishing to the, the uh, threatening cue, there's um, uh, relaxation training, uh, coping skill training. Um, I mean, you could probably list all the things better than I could, but there's, uh, there's a lot of like top-down thing. The patient and, and uh, therapist are talking, The or maybe it's client in, in their case, I guess the client and therapist are talking and um, all of that is going on in the context of exposing the person to the stimulus. Now, I think, you know, that's just the way the field evolved, but you know it's uh, and it works okay, but it's maybe not as good as one would like. Um, but if you look at, at how you do this in the laboratory, obviously we don't talk to our rats and so forth. Um, but the uh, the procedures are even in a human study, you basically bring the person in and you they get conditioned, for example. And then the next day they come back in and then you just present the stimulus over and over again. And that weakens the response. Um, it, I think it could be interesting to try regular, pure, simple extinction 
without any top-down um, part. And why do I say that? Because, you know, when you ask the brain to do two things at once, um, it becomes less efficient at either one. So, you know, if you're, especially the more top-down processing you bring in, it kind of like sucks up brain resources. So uh, it could be interesting to look at it that way. I mean, there's what, what I've proposed is a way to kind of get at these this fundamental basic um, problems like, you know, that the, the hyper arousal and oversensitivity to threat cues that, that people often have um, might be through subliminal extinction. Uh, that would be using uh, various procedures that are common in cognitive neuroscience, such as uh, presenting a stimulus very briefly and following it with a mask uh, that, that prevents the person from being conscious of the stimulus. We know if threats are presented that way um, and the person is put in an imaging machine, the amygdala is activated and um, the body responds, uh, but the person has no awareness of what the stimulus that was presented is and uh, reports no feeling of fear, even if pressed. And, you know, you feel anything. So you feel like anything aversive. They say no. And so turning on the amygdala this, <clears throat> this way um, can trigger the autonomic nervous system. And uh, so it makes sense that perhaps it could be extinguished. Now, there are two kinds of studies that have suggested the possibility uh, um, of subliminal extinction uh, that um, are, you know, are interesting to consider. Uh, one is, uh, I can remember the guy's name. Um, anyway, he's at SUNY New Pulse, uh, SUNY, SUNY uh, uh, was it? Purchase, I think. And he's done this for a number uh, of years using brief exposures to stimuli unconsciously, subconsciously, subliminally, to create long-lasting uh, uh, effects on, for example, the, the exposed spider phobics to stimuli um, briefly uh, and unconsciously, and then showed that there were uh, prolonged uh, effects later on the, on the reaction. Now, I don't fully understand how that works since it was just one stimulus, but he's reported a couple of uh, studies on that. Um, and I can get you the name so that you can um, put it into the uh, your website so that they, people can see who that is. Um, he's associated with a fellow named Joel Weinberg, um, who's I think at uh, Delphi University, um, who also did some studies like that. So that would be a, another way to identify who this person is that I'm, for, I'm blocking on. Um, the... Um, Another method that's been used is uh, and pioneered by Hakwan Lau at UCLA. He's a good friend and colleague of mine. And um, he uses you know, multi-voxel um, decoding methods. It's way too complicated to explain, but it's a way of uh, weakening the, the effects of a condition stimulus, aversive condition stimulus, by basically counter-conditioning it uh, unconsciously. And he does this by reinforcing certain patterns of, of neural activity. Again, it's very complicated. Uh, so I'm not going to say too much about it, but he's published a, uh, a paper on this um, 
I think it was in uh, PNAS uh, uh, in, in healthy people. Now, the question is, can either of these things be put into practice? I mean, the first kind is much more practical because it's just, you know, stimulus presentations. The other kind requires, you know, uh, state-of-the-art imaging machines to do this uh, neural decoding. So, um, you know, I, I think we, we still have a ways to go, but these are promising results. So what that means is that you can, if it, if it all turns out, we can tame the amygdala, for example, through extinction this way, pure extinction, um, uh, just weakening the amygdala's response. So if you do that, you're going to reduce hypersensitivity to the threat. You're going to reduce, um, at least the, on an, in an automatic sense, you're not going to react to the threat so quickly. And you're going to reduce the uh, hyperarousal that, that the amygdala is driving. So if you could do that, that might, you know, then allow you to then address semantic and episodic memories about the threat in a brain that is less uh, aroused, which, you know, might facilitate things if you can more calmly approach the problem. And once you've done that, in other words, you've first tamed the amygdala, second, you've tamed the hippocampus, which is involved in these memories, uh, you might then have a brain that's ready to do regular old talk therapy uh, because you've, you've changed some beliefs and you've changed some uh, physiology. Um, and by separately approaching those things as individual symptoms rather than as a, a syndrome that you're going to change all at once, it, you know, it might be useful to at least try it out. That's uh, so fascinating. And as a clinician, I can say one of the biggest challenges with the doing exposure therapy is how aversive it is. Uh, clients really don't like it because, you know, of course, it evokes all kinds of somatic and, and psychological distress so that the adherence rate can be quite low. So this is a that's a really intriguing uh, way into the problem that I think would be a lot more humane, ultimately, uh, at the end of the day. So the other I mean, the other thing that might be really practical in anyone could uh, do, you'd have to establish some protocols for doing it, but is create distraction because distraction is a way to put information in um, non-consciously um, because you're consciously, you know, it kind of goes against what I said earlier about, you know, asking the brain to do too much at once, but the, this would be a different test. So the brain is, I don't know, uh, counting backwards or something while you're like in the periphery of, of vision, say just kind of showing pictures um, of, of spiders. Um, you know, so distraction is, is a useful way to prevent you from being conscious of something. Uh, you know, it's, it's a little imprecise, but it's worth trying. You know, again, protocols would have to be developed, but I think it's an interesting possibility. I have a question for you around the pharmacological treatment of challenging emotions, and I, I need to do a little bit of a setup for this one. So, of course, as you alluded to, your model of emotions strongly suggests that a sense of self is required to experience emotion, emotions, like a bad thing is happening to me, me specifically nested within a life and a, a schema, essentially. You've made the point that standard antidepressant medications have not worked out as hope with respect to treating anxiety as these compounds largely act upon subcortical regions of the brain that might be more involved with these unconscious survival circuits. So like their, their site of action is misaligned with the actual seat of the emotional experience, potentially in other words. Um, 
Something that's been really interesting to me is that, you know, we know that psychedelic compounds like psilocybin can have a very powerful impact on one's sense of self, including even kind of dissolving one's sense of self. There's also growing evidence that psychedelic compounds could be useful in the treatment of trauma, existential anxiety, and really, you know, promote long-term changes in personality with like one dose uh, administration. So, I mean, all this to say, like, what do you think about the therapeutic potential of psychedelic compounds from the lens of emotions being nested within a sense of self and the impact that psychedelics could have on that sense of self? Yeah, I think that's a, a fascinating possibility. You know, I'm not a, I really, I haven't followed the psilocybin work that closely. Um, but yet yeah, it certainly kind of maps onto what I'm talking about. If, if it's actually doing what it's proposed to do, which is the, the sense of self thing. Um, so that's, that's definitely uh, cool stuff. Yeah, definitely an area of growing research. And even just the fact that they have, they perturb the conscious experience so dramatically provides all the reason you need, I think, to, to pursue these things. So I, I just wanted to make a, a point about, you know, you, you said that, uh, the pharmaceutical uh, medications are targeting subcortical areas, and maybe that's not where we need to target. The reason that is, is because the work, the drug discovery work is done in animals. So in animals, all you can do is test their behavior. So you put a rat or a mouse in a stressful situation, and if it looks, if it comes out uh, less stressful, in other words, it freezes less or avoids less in that, in that uh, chamber, then you're assuming that the animal is less fearful or anxious. And so you give it to people and assume that they'll be less fearful or anxious because we share those subcortical circuits with, um, with uh, animals. So, but this is the whole amygdala fear center idea, which I think is, is totally uh, misguided. And unfortunately my work is uh, responsible for some of that. Um, but the, the, the point is that there are a lot of things we can learn from animal research, tremendous amount. Um, you know, how the brain detects and responds to danger, how it's physiologically aroused, how various kinds of memories are formed and stored in, in, in non-human primates. We can study the working memory foundations that are important in consciousness. We can never know what these animals were consciously experiencing. I think that, it, that probably rats and, and monkeys, of course, have conscious experiences. But they're not going to be the kinds of conscious experiences that are uh, made by the kind of brain we have, because they don't have our kind of brain. People don't have any problem looking at a, a, a monkey and say, the monkey doesn't look like me. Uh, why should it look like me? It's a different animal. But when you talk about emotions, people get upset if uh, animals don't have the exact same kind of emotions we do. I mean, I, I have a cat. I pet him. He purrs. Uh, he's cries for food, I give him food because I think he's hungry. Uh, and he's having some kind of experience like that. But that doesn't mean that we should be projecting our millions of years of evolution back onto him. Um, it, <clears throat> we, we don't know what's going on in the mind of an animal, but we can. We can look at uh, how their brains are similar and different from ours and try to make extrapolations from that. So there are certain areas in the medial prefrontal cortex, that's on the middle side inside between the two hemispheres, um, <clears throat> that are shared by rats, by, by all mammals. There are areas in the prefrontal, lateral prefrontal cortex, like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, that are present in primates, but not other mammals. And there's a region in the human brain, in the very front, in the middle here, down 
all the way in the front called the frontal pole, part of which is only present in human primates, not present in non-human primates. And that part in the very front, the frontal pole, has been implicated in subjective metacognition, the ability to, to know you ch you're changing, to have the ability to change your mind and knowing you're doing it, uh, and to be aware of yourself as, as part of that. So, um, it, you know, I'm not saying that, the, the, that everything is so simple, that you've got three kinds of areas of the brain that uh, account for three kinds of different consciousness, but using, you know, the Canadian Indel-Tolving scheme of um, uh, autonoetic consciousness being self-awareness and the ability to mentally put yourself in the past or in the future using declarative memory, episodic memory, uh, that's the highest level. And we certainly, as humans, have that. Uh, it's not clear uh, that, the, that other primates have, <clears throat> have that. There have been a lot of research on that. Uh, but the research has not convincingly shown that. But maybe they do. I mean, you know, it's hard to get to the details. But it's unlikely to be developed to the extent that ours is because so much of our cognition is based on language. It's not to say that, you know, language defines consciousness, but it certainly uh, does impact the way we think. Our words are anchors upon which all of our experiences are, are uh, categorized and based. So I think we have to, you know, assume that if a, an animal doesn't have language, its experiences are going to be very different in uh, in many respects. Um, second level of of tolving is semantic memory. Now that is something that non-human primates clearly, clearly could have. Um, it's just knowledge that there's a stimulus there, and what is it? They have object recognition. We know that they may have <clears throat> have some kind of object recognition. Um, experience. They could also have some kind of self-awareness that's not exactly the kind that, that we have because their brains are different. I mean, they couldn't have self-awareness that's in terms of personal pronouns, which are so essential in the development of self-awareness in the child. You know, once I, me, mine, all those things are, again, hooks that, that we hang our experiences on and we, that allows us to separate our experiences from you, them, and so forth. Um, and so it's, it's our cognitions are, are very different. Other mammals, um, I'm not saying they have no experiences, but what they may have is a kind of body sense that is, uh, uh, they're able to know when they're in the presence of, um, the, uh, behaviorally, of course, they know they're in the presence of um, uh, food because they can approach it. They're in the presence of a mate because they attempt to mate. Um, but subjectively, what is there? Is, the, is there a, a subjective awareness of, oh, I want that food? Or is there just a subjective awareness that food is there and then the behavioral responses do the rest? Uh, we don't know. It's, hard, it's very hard to know. But breaking things down and solving uh, three ways, I think, gives us a lot of flexibility in talking about consciousness, uh, at least speculating about consciousness in other animals without assuming consciousness is one thing and that we have to talk about it the same in every animal.
I want to drill down just a little bit on that. And I fear I'm going to have to veer into folk psychology just a little bit and be a little bit fast and loose with some terms. But I think you'll see where I'm going. You know, something I've wondered repeatedly while sitting with clients in session, especially considering unconscious processes. And I don't mean in the Freudian way. I mean, just in the literal sort of idea that there's things going on we're not aware of. Is there any adequate way of describing how subcortical areas of the brain think in air quotes? And again, I'm using that term really loosely. Specifically, if activity in these brain areas is not experienced consciously through some sort of verbal articulation, how are calculations with respect to threat rendered? How are they considered, debated? So again, I know it's a bit of a little bit of an ethereal question, but I'd just love to hear your take on how that kind of, how that works at the subcortical in the subcortical world. Let's say. Well, you know, I think uh, let me start by saying uh, I think in in either I think probably an anxious or maybe in something I've written uh, after that, but I, I, I think it was an anxious that I said that the um, uh, the, the body language, the kind of the a lot of what happened. Again, I'm not a therapist and not you know, very experienced in that whole area, but to me, what seemed to be important would be that a lot of what happens is happening between the non-conscious brains of the patient and the client. That a lot of the work is going on in that way, where you know you things are are being exchanged and uh, and the talk is kind of um you know it's it's like it's above the the level of where the real work is and maybe that's why you know sometimes when there's a pause i've heard therapists say that that's when you know a lot of uh, good things happen because uh, this stuff is just consolidating and, and percolating unconsciously so you know we, i think we have to a lot of consciousness is important but it's not all important um, and a lot of life just takes place unconsciously. So as I said before, you know, every conscious thought is based on a, a body of uh, information processing that's unconscious until that last fraction of a second when it's conscious. So we have all, you know, all these schema and processes that are, that are underlying everything and one way to think about it is that consciousness is based on an unconscious meta-representation. The meta-representation is that collection of, of all of the information going on right now. And there are probably lots of those meta-representations that are going on all the time. And it's, though, it's which one of those that becomes the conscious thought uh, that's important. Now, part of that what the non-conscious meta, excuse me, one non-conscious meta representations are doing is um, <clears throat> writing a narrative. So it's an unconscious narrative that you then experience. And that is then what you consciously talk about uh, is your unconscious narratives that have entered your mind. Um, so again, I think a lot of the stuff is going on uh, subcortically. And because, as I said, each symptom is based on a different subcortical system. Your question would have to be separately addressed for each subcortical system. There's not a subcortical language uh, because each system has its own way of, of doing things. For example, we have uh, just to list some, some uh, simple behaviors, reflexes, 
which obviously we don't have a lot of conscious access to. They're totally unconscious. Uh, we have fixed reactions, fixed action patterns, as the uh, ethologists call them, like freezing uh, or um, uh, um, approach to uh, certain kinds of innate stimuli, um, avoidance of others. So these behaviors uh, are, are above reflexes, but still pretty automatic, and we don't have a lot of conscious access to it. We probably begin to have conscious access to these things uh, when we start talking about instrumental behavior. For example, goal-directed actions. Those in animals are learned through trial and error learning. Uh, in humans, we simulate the trial and error learning and just you know, uh, you know, perform the action based on what we um, uh, what we've simulated. Um, but there's another kind of goal-directed activity that when repeated often becomes a habit. So then it loses conscious uh, access. So consciousness no longer can control it because it's, uh, it's become habitual. And those of course are very important in psychopathology. Um, so, you know, when we, we have to ask, how do we, uh, how do we change a habit? Because it's cognitively impenetrable. Um, and that is a tough question. So that probably has to be done by kind of encouraging the client to remove their mind, their conscious mind from the habit while doing some kind of behavioral process that will be able to try and change the habit non-consciously. So the good news is that I think um, the... Uh, a lot of our feelings, conscious feelings, are as a result of cognitive processing and you know learning and so forth at the higher level. Um, that you know we might be able to change our feelings through that same kind of thing, but we have to kind of tamp down on those other things. We got to get the the habits and the arousal and the automatic patterns. Uh, under control because then they begin to interfere with the the uh, top-down um, conscious feelings that, that you're working on separately. But at the same time, if you only change the conscious feelings, then the arousal and the other things will bring them back because it's all, you know, all that information remains in the brain. It can all be reassembled even if you've like hardened it off and, and held it back in a way. So in terms of the subcortical errors, I think you know, many of them function non-consciously, uh, and uh, and it's going to be hard to um, to get at those uh, as or to think about those in terms of thoughts that can be exchanged. Um, the but as you go into higher, you know, a lot of cognition is is unconscious, non-conscious, and though that's where we, what you're talking about may uh, have more value, more use. How to how to match the the non-conscious cognitive processes uh, that are going on in the patient and client, and how to do the work there. That I don't have a, a specific answer for, but I hope I've narrowed down the scope of what needs to be addressed uh, for you. No, absolutely. And I want to ask you a related question, which again may just ultimately end in speculation, but this is, this is really fascinating. 
what many of us see clinically is that clients appear to be, and I'm going to, again, air quoting here, carrying emotions that they're not consciously aware of. Like we can see it, but they're not consciously experiencing this. So for example, it's very common for clients to present as being angry when they're actually really sad, uh, or it could, the opposite can be true as well. And when you point this out, say, Hey, I think you're really hurting right now. Uh, the experience of sadness pours forth consciously often with, with a lot of force. Do we have any sense of how emotions are, again, air quoting this, stored, you know, offline, as well as how emotions relate to one another and how the brain might, you know, hierarchically or functionally organize or control the experience of emotions relative to one another? So, you know, again, in in my way of thinking about things, all there are no basic emotions and higher order emotions. They're all higher order emotions. They're all cognitively assembled. So... I, for me, I, I, I reserve mental state terms, which, and I consider an emotion a mental state term. I reserve those for mental states. The other stuff that happens underneath there uh, is, I don't consider that an emotion. I consider that a, uh, uh, you know, you have these, these various subcortical processes. In the case of fear and anxiety, you often have a defensive survival circuit that is active. Uh, but the, uh, you know, that's, that's a kind of predator. That's a, a circuit that we've inherited for predatory kinds of defenses, but that's not going to account for all our fears. If we are afraid uh, because we're on a mountaintop and don't have any food, we're afraid of, of starving to death. That has nothing to do with the defensive predatory circuit. That's a, that's a hypothalamic, metabolic circuit that is engaged or let's say you don't have any water so you're afraid of dehydrating that's another different hypothalamic uh, circuit or you're afraid of freezing to death and you don't have any shelter it's a different circuit that you know is giving you signals that you cognitively interpretate interpret uh, and and as a result are experiencing fear because you don't of, of the danger that is there so and I think all emotions are like that. They, they are cognitive interpretations. The physiology doesn't uh, define the emotion. It gives you some clues that helps narrow, narrow the uh, decision process by your cognitive systems about what it is that's uh, happening and how you should interpret it. But for this reason, because emotions are your cognitive interpretations, I, I say that uh, what you're experiencing in the, in the moment, you can never be wrong about. If you, if you say you're feeling fear and you, you're being honest and, you know, then you are feeling fear. If in the, pro, in the situation where you describe, you, you switch the, the person around. So all of a sudden they're experiencing sadness or, 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 or anger or something. Um, then what you've done is, you know, again, we have these unconscious, preconscious um, uh, templates or what will I say, preconscious meta uh, representations that are being built up by a situation. And, you know, because situations are complex, you might have a meta representation about anger that's percolating there partly or one that's about uh, sadness that's percolating and one about uh, 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 danger that's percolating. And, you know, something about the situation tip, you know, some of those subcortical activities that are present are tipping it in one way or the other. And the danger one pops into consciousness. And so you feel fear. 
But now you're going to you you can tap into the sadness one or the anger one through um, uh, information that you are presenting to the person because the the person's uh, uh, body is pulling all this information in and but only one of them is is reaching consciousness at a time and you're able to pull in the anger uh, from what you've said pop it into consciousness and that once you pop that in then the, the fear has to move out and so that's just my off the top of my head thoughts okay so what do you think is the value add to consciousness over perhaps a more audited automated way of navigating the world I'm strongly entertaining the possibility myself that this experiment may not end up being uh, productive from an evolutionary perspective. You know, we haven't been around along that long, right? So the jury's still out. What, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think that, you know, and now I'm talking about autonoetic consciousness rather than consciousness in general. Uh, and autonoetic consciousness is the basis of, this is our self-consciousness, the basis of our greatest achievements as a, a species, art, literature, music, science, mathematics, um, but also our worst proclivities in terms of greed and narcissism and hatred. Um, and so I think, it, you know, it's, we're at a tipping point in, in, uh, in life where we have, uh, we've created a situation, for example, the environment, which we're uh, just hurling towards uh, being uninhabitable uh, by some species. It's already happening for some species. Look at the polar ice cap. And perhaps in not so far the future, uninhabitable or less habitable by us. This is something that, that we've done uh, out of our self-aggrandizing and, and self-desire without much uh, forethought. So I think we're, we're really pushing ourselves to a point with our conscious minds. And if that's true, then the only way to reverse it is to bring back a kind of universal accepted um, set of criteria for, for what a person is and how they should be uh, treated and evaluated. And, and what's the greater good? We are, we're only gonna solve this problem the many problems we have as a world now is if we can come together as a species, because we have global problems. We can't solve this by the US doing something, Canada doing something, Iran doing something, China, Russia, all doing something. Uh, even if they're all doing something, you know, in the right direction, which they're not, uh, and we aren't either, but um, even if we all got everybody to do a little bit on their own, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't help. I think we have to come together as a species so that all our conscious minds agree on what the problem is and what we need to, uh, how we need to solve it because piecemeal is, is not going to work. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. Um, as I'll have mentioned in the bio, you are in the band, the Amygdaloids and have been for quite some time. I believe you're also in a, an acoustic duo as well. The duo is called So We Are. We're acoustic amygdaloids. Amygdaloids unplugged as per 1992 MTV specials. Yeah. Um, I'm a musician myself, and I wanted to ask you just a couple rapid fire music questions uh, just to kind of pick your brain on that. What's the favorite song that you've written? I think probably uh, Mind Over Matter uh, would be. It's on the second album, Amygdaloids' second album called 
theory of my mind. Uh, all songs about you know mind and brain. All, all the amygdaloid songs are like that. But the theory of my mind was the most consistent across the board. You know, each song was about some aspect of mind and brain. Obviously, theory of my mind uh, is about uh, you know theory of mind, uh, and it's a, but all the, these songs are put into you know romantic relationship kinds of issues. Like theory of my mind is about you know somebody having a relationship and the other person. Uh, doesn't understand him you know do you have a theory of my mind if so, if so why are you so blind to all the things that i do blah 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 uh and you know they're all, so they're all kind of like that some of them are tongue-in-cheek and funny and others are more serious uh mm-hmm. but you know we've, we've produced i don't know i guess the amygdaloids had five albums and then i've done a couple of um one in two two independent ones and then one with so we are I, lately, I've been releasing albums with uh, with books. Um, so, Anxious has an album that uh, goes with it, and you can get a free download of that from by scanning a QR code in the preface. Uh, the The text says that it's it won't be available after a year, but that's uh, not true. We never turned it off. So, I think the free download of that is available. In my last book, The Deep History of Ourselves, the four, four billion year story of how we got conscious brains, uh, there's a, a short EP in there with uh, four songs called uh, Songs of Life. And they're all about, you know, things that happen in evolution, but in a, in a, in a, not, not in a, a kind of cheesy science way, but more in a, you know, pop song way of uh, covering some scientific ideas, but without um, going, you know, too cheesy. What is your uh, musical guilty pleasure? What's the music you love that everyone else loves to hate? Oh, I, 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 I think I have, uh, I'm, I'm eclectic and I, I don't think I have music that everyone hates. Uh, um, so I take it you're not a Nickelback fan then? No. <laughs> no I mean, you know, I, I like country rock um, blues confused kinds of things uh, i'm a big pop music fan i was a disc jockey in high school um and been involved in we had bands in high school been involved in this stuff for a long time i'm not like you know I'm a great musician but i like it a lot and every day i do something and try to record or play a little bit i think one of your other questions you listed was uh my the guitar that i regret uh getting rid of Yes, that's my favorite thing to ask a musician. Is like, what's the one that got away? We all have one. Uh, I had a, I think it was a 63 Fender Mustang. And I got it in the, in the 70s when I was at, in graduate school at Stony Brook. <clears throat> I know, maybe I got it. Maybe I got it when I was still in, at Louisiana State University. Anyway, I've had, I had it for a little while. But, you know, I didn't know a lot about like guitars and stuff and that they the necks would bend and, uh, you know, it was just kind of in bad shape. I had no idea that it could be easily repaired. And so in the, in the nineties, I decided I was going to start playing guitar again. I put it down for a while. We had kids and it was just busy writing books and all that stuff. So in the late nineties, I decided to buy a brand new Stratocaster, 1997 Stratocaster. And to do that, I traded in the old Mustang, which, you know, seemed like it wasn't, it was never going to be used. 
They gave me a couple hundred bucks for it, put it in the window and sold it for $3,000. I think. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but I got, you know, I still have, I don't know if you, anyway. That's the strap right there. 97 strap. Yeah. American standard. Yeah, it's great. You know, I like it a lot. And uh, my favorite guitar that I have is one that is exactly my age. We were both born in 1949, the Gibson J45 acoustic. Oh, wow. That, that must be pretty sweet to play. Yeah, it's good. And uh, do you take extra special care of that? Do you have it like in a climate controlled kind of uh, situation or are you pretty laissez-faire about it? I struggle with that every winter and um, you know, it's in New York and apartments is almost impossible. You can have a tiny little room and put like six humidifiers in there and you just can't get the humidity up to 49, you know? So they get, they crack, I take them to the repair shop every spring, they glue it up and that's where we go. Oh man, this could devolve into a whole, whole other podcast, but I know we're, we're a bit short on time here. Last question for you. Uh, favorite venue you've gigged at and why? What, what, what was it? Was it the vibe? Was it the sound, the crowd? So I think, you know, what initially comes to mind is the Sidewalk Cafe in New York. That was a, a place in the East Village that we had a relationship with and basically could just, you know, even in New York, we could just call up and they would like to play and they put us down, you know, maybe it might take a month to get in, but we could always like have a gig there. And it, uh, last year it was sold and was turned into some kind of, you know, cafe that had music, but, you know, it was geared towards a different kind of crowd. The East village, uh, club scene was more about really funky dive bar places and then, Sidewalk was just great in that respect. Um, but the other thing that we had, the two kind of big places that we played, uh, one was the uh, uh, Kennedy Center. We played a, a little gig in their lobby. Uh, they had a lobby festival thing once and we played there. So that was exciting. Uh, it was not our best performance. So I don't know. I hope it's not online anywhere, but it was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> But the most exciting was at NYU's graduation, we got to play at Madison Square Garden a couple of times. Wow. And that was just fantastic. Yeah, we got like, you know, three minutes, uh, 3.5 minutes to play. And, it, you know, it's all precise because the whole thing is stayed so precisely. But it was a great uh, three and a half minutes. What, uh, I'm going to sneak in one more here. You know, if you think about like, you know, the boss or, or, you know, any of those guys who have had stints at Madison Square Gardens for like, you know, days on end, what did looking out into that venue, what kind of perspective did that give you into the experience of being a full on rock star? Yeah. So here's where it happened. So towards, uh, towards the end of, uh, well, I think we played three songs very quickly. Uh, and in the, as the third one started, the, the crowd was really into it. And so the students were all on the, the floor and all the, you know, guests, the, fa the families and stuff were around and the bleachers. Um, the students started doing the wave and then all the people in the bleachers were doing the wave. So it's like, you know, 7,000 people doing the wave for the amygdaloids. That was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That was the, the beginning and the end right there. <laughs> oh, man, that's amazing. I think everyone should have uh, that experience just once in their lives to be able to... Uh, that's on YouTube, by the way. You can see that. Oh, right on. I'll check that out. That's amazing. 
Go to the Amygdaloids YouTube channel and find all that stuff. Excellent. Uh, if people want to find you online, where can they uh, where can they learn more? Yeah. So the you know the the starting point for everything about me, you know, science, music, books, all that, is my personal website, which is joseph-ledoux.com. I'll put that in the uh, show notes for sure, of course. And uh, to the listener, I can't give any higher a recommendation to the book Anxious as well as Deep History of Ourselves. I had to read both of them about 1.5 times to, to really, really sort of uh, grasp it all. I was really quite humbled uh, by them both, despite having you know been in the field of psychology for well over 20 years now. So thank you for writing those books. I think they're so helpful. And I, I recommend them all thank the time. So it's been great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for your time today. You've been so gracious with your time and, and your answers. And uh, I, I appreciate you being able to uh, speculate where on, on a few big questions for me. So thank you so much. Listen, take good care and uh, we'll hopefully talk to you soon. Great. Thanks, Pete. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.